The Babylonians captured Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They dethroned the king and deported most of her people to Babylon, where they remained in exile for about 70 years. Then, in 539 BC, Babylon fell to the Persians, who undid many of Babylon's policies and ended up kindly sending God's people back home to Jerusalem. And so there God's people were post-exile, home in Jerusalem, and God sent the prophet Haggai. His message for them is basically this. God's people must obey and rebuild the temple. There's the message of Haggai. That's what God has for these people. God's people must obey and rebuild the temple. So we're going to read and understand how God moved and motivated his people to rebuild the temple. I'm going to spoil this for you. You and I have not been called to rebuild the temple. So there will not be a direct application in that way. But God has called us. And God has made clear what he wants us to do with the lives that he has given us. And God is immutable, which means that God does not change, which means that there were ways that God dealt with his people in Jerusalem that he still deals with us today. So, without any more delay, before we get into this book, let's pray. Let's ask for God's his help. Our Father in heaven, we need your help. You have done so much for us. You have saved us and you are changing us, but there is so much work to be done. And we want all the joy that is there for us, and we want all the glory that we could bring you, and we need your help. So please open our eyes and ears and heart, everything in us that may be closed to you that needs opening. We pray, God, that you would open us to you so that we would love you more and obey you and serve you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Haggai. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find this little book on page 743. The purpose or aim of this man's message is to challenge and encourage God's people to Rebuild the temple. 
As I mentioned before, the first temple, that is Solomon's temple, it had been totally destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years before. And that first temple was a big deal. It was the centerpiece of their society. It was the earthly dwelling place of God. It was the place of God's presence and his glory. It was the place of worship. And it was the earthly seat of God's kingly reign. And also, as we'll see today, that temple was central in God's plan to save his people. So it needed to be rebuilt. You couldn't just leave it in ruins. But as we're going to see, and as we have experienced, sometimes God's people are slow to listen. And sometimes God's people are slow to obey. Not me, probably you. (laughs) Aren't we all slow to listen? Aren't we all often or at times slow to obey? So let's see how God gets his will done. Let's see how he deals with his people. Here's the outline of this book. If you're taking notes, there's going to be four messages Four from Haggai. One challenge and three encouragements. One challenge and three encouragements aimed at getting God's people to rebuild the temple. Let's get into it. First, we have the challenge. And we find the challenge... In chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Here is the challenge, or we might say, here are the hard words. People who love you, including God, sometimes they have hard words for you. And then we'll see people who love you, including God, also have soft words for you. But these are some pretty hard words at the beginning of this book. In the second year of King Darius, so that actually places this book firmly in the year 520 B.C. This book, unlike any of the others, gives us very specific dates. So this is 520 B.C. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. So Haggai's first message, this challenge, it was addressed to the governor, and it was addressed to the high priest. It was addressed to the governor, Zerubbabel, who was the grandson of Jehoiakim, who was Judah's last terrible king described in 2 Kings 24. You can go read about him later if you want. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. The Lord's house is the temple. It was not rebuilt yet. And the reason it had not been rebuilt, apparently, is because in the mind of the people, the time has not yet come. It's not there yet. When the time is right, we'll rebuild the temple. Well, we can read about this historically. When they first came to town, they started strong. But then the work got tough. You know what this is like. Then the work became difficult. There was less motivation They got embroiled in legal battles over land. There was external opposition, and so they decided to take a little break. And that little break has lasted 19 years. This is why God's hot over this. 19 years. So here's God's response to that. The time is not right to rebuild the temple. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Not just any houses. Paneled houses. That means, translated today, this is state-of-the-art homes. These were nice homes. For 19 years, they had neglected God's house to focus on their own houses. The wainscoting, the nice chair rail, the perfect colors of paint, the crown molding. They've got sweet paneled homes. Meanwhile, God's house is neglected. They had forsaken their first love. Their priorities were out of order. They had been pursuing their own pleasure and not God's pleasure. They were like those in 2 Timothy 3, 4. They were lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It wasn't wrong for them to build nice houses. Please hear that. It wasn't wrong for them to build their nice houses. It was wrong that they built their houses before they built God's house. Verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. In other words, stop and think about what you are doing and how it is going. Stop and think about what you are prioritizing. Give careful thought to your ways. Verse 6. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So they had prioritized 
earthly consumption, and it had not gone well. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. I'm going to read that last sentence one more time. They had prioritized earthly consumption, and it had not gone well. And God said, what you brought home, I blew away. Why hadn't their pursuit of pleasure succeeded? God said, what you brought home, I blew away. They had neglected God's will, and by his grace, that had not gone well for them. It was God's hand behind their misfortune. God was making sure that their selfish pursuits didn't satisfy. He goes on, why? declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Verse 10, therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. We should pause and consider this. Deprioritizing the things of God will not go well for you. Deprioritizing the things of God, communing with Him, for example. Reading his word, that is hearing from him. Praying, that is speaking to him. Communing with him. Worshipping him. That is reading his word with other Christians. That is singing songs to him with other Christians. That is sitting under the reading and preaching of his word. That is taking the Lord's Supper together. That is worshipping him obeying Him, serving Him with your life. You are not here for you. You are here for God. And we can get our priorities out of whack. But deprioritizing the things of God, that communion with Him, that worshiping Him, obeying Him, and serving Him, it will not go well for you. And if He loves you, He will see to that. Do you understand the worst thing that could happen? Is that you turn from God and in this life it goes well for you. 
that would be his judgment. You'd be handed over. God mercifully made sure their selfish pursuits failed so that they would hit that wall and turn back to him. So what is the challenge in Haggai's first message? Prioritize the things of God and get to work. He says it very plainly to them. Here's their response. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. I hope we all respond like this when challenged by God. When challenged by God through his word, through a pastor, through a spouse, through a friend, through a parent. And now see how the Lord deals with them. Let's work through these other messages. Because they responded well. Challenge accepted. They're responding well to this challenge of God. And so now, the rest of these messages, they are encouragement. He's got them going, and now he's going to keep them going with encouragement. There's three of them. Let's look at encouragement number one. It's in chapter one, verses 13 through 15, and this is 24 Days later, so this is about a month now since challenge accepted. Here's the encouragement. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. There's two things to see here in this encouragement. There is something God did, and there is something God said. First, see what God did. He stirred up their spirits. This is no small thing. This doesn't mean he was the main speaker at the rally. It doesn't mean this was some kind of a pep talk. This is not something that you or I could ever do. If we talk about stirring up hearts of people, we mean something very different than what is here when we're told that God was stirring up their spirits. That means that God enabled them to obey. That means that God did what only God can do, and he reached within these men and women 
where God has control even over the wellspring of our life, over our hearts, and God moved them to do what he was calling them to do. That's what God did. And then second, what did he say to encourage them? He said something that easily could have taken up the rest of the sermon. He said in verse 13, I am with you. I am with you. What does that mean? Does that just mean God's mere presence? Well, God's already with us. God is omnipresent, meaning God's everywhere all the time. So how is this different? How is this new? How is this special? God is already with us. Wait a minute. The New Testament tells us where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there also. The Holy Spirit dwells in me as a Christian. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. That means that God's presence is already with me all the time. So, I am with you. This means more. This means much more than mere presence. I've never taught my kids to pray this, but every one of them at some point prayed this, and I bet your kids have prayed this too, God be with us today. There's some of the first and simplest, it's one of the first and simplest prayers you hear coming out of the mouths of little kids in Christians' homes. God be with us today. God be with us tonight. God be with us tomorrow. And I think at times I have been prematurely judgmental of that prayer. Well, he's already with us, son. He's already with us. We don't need to pray that God would be with us. And when I've said that, I've been very wrong. This refers to God's supportive presence. Not just standing there. Not just in the room. Not just around. But He is there to help you. He is there to strengthen you. He's there, you fail, to forgive you and to encourage you and to embolden you. 
He is there to enable you. He is there to protect you. This is God's supportive presence. That is why there is nothing more helpful that Jesus could say before he left his disciples than what he said in Matthew 28, 20, after he gave them a big job to do. And he said, listen, surely I am with you always. Not I'm just your buddy. I'm there. I'm a shoulder to cry on. I'll be your best friend. I'm there to enable you, to protect you, to help you, to strengthen you. You can't do this without me. You will do this with me because I'm with you. Encouragement number one. Enabled by God, his people would rebuild the temple. And as they did, they would have the supportive presence of God. Let's look at the second encouragement. It's found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. This gets at something that God knew was going on in their minds and hearts. A discouragement, a doubt that was behind their slowness to rebuild the temple. God will speak to it. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, so this is another month later, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. So this is everybody. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? What's going on here? God is drawing something out. God's questions are never trying to get at information that he doesn't have. God knows what's in their hearts. And he's drawing it out by asking this question. And here is what was happening. If you wanted, you could go over to Ezra chapter 3, and you could read the historical narrative that describes this, specifically verse 12. There were some old guys who had seen the first temple. The one that was destroyed almost 70 years ago. They had seen Solomon's temple. And they watched it destroyed, and they saw these ruins. And now they're looking around, remembering that first temple, watching this second one being built, and in their mind, it didn't even come close. In some ways, they were right. This second temple was a much smaller, more modest version of the original, and it would not contain the Ark of the Covenant. They were probably, these men, among the few who truly still understood the importance of the temple. And though they were glad to see its construction restart, they doubted its glory. So God encourages them. 
verses 4 and 5, but now be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord, be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So God reminds them to be strong and to do their part, which is to work hard and to remember that God has committed himself to them. He refers to his covenant with them, his commitment to them. This is what I covenanted with you. I will be with you. And then he says this in verses 6 through 9, and it's very surprising. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. This temple, which some feared would not be as good as the first, would actually be better. How? Verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Verse 9. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. Listen, he says. This house is going to be filled with more glory than the first. How is that possible? And now here, I think, is the main reason why. And in this place, that is in this temple you are rebuilding, and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. We've got to think about this. In this temple... So I have greater glory than the first. This is why in this temple, I will grant peace, God tells them. What is peace? A peace is a, a state of mutual harmony. It is the absence of strife and war and conflict between us and God and between us and others. This is peace. In 520 B.C., when Haggai is writing this, his audience knew that that kind of peace was long gone. It was lost in, do you remember when it was lost? In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam rebelled against God. But they also knew that God had promised their father Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that peace would return. 
God had promised them that one day all peoples on the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Here's what I think God meant when he said, In this place, in this temple that you are rebuilding, I will grant peace. This temple that they are building would witness and even manifest, that is, display God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Let me say that sentence one more time and then I'll explain it. The reason this temple is even greater is that this temple that they were building, it was going to be around, it would witness, and it would even manifest, it would display God's fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham. In this temple, just like the first temple, you may already know this, there were two rooms. In this temple were two rooms, and those two rooms were separated by a magnificent curtain. And that curtain represented sin's power to separate man from God. So there was a separation between man and God. There was not peace between man and God. You couldn't go into that second room. This was called the most holy place. And there was this great curtain that separated them. And when Jesus died, that curtain spontaneously tore in half. That curtain in this temple that these people were rebuilding. Mark 15, 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God had made a way to reconcile his people to himself. God had granted peace through Christ and it was manifested in the temple at that moment when the curtain tore in two. His people now had full access by the blood of Christ. It's what Hebrews 10 describes in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. You hear the imagery, the temple, the curtain. The curtain's been torn down. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us now draw near to God. We can draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So that is the heart of Haggai's second encouragement. The temple that they are rebuilding 
would witness and manifest God's fulfillment of his promise to bring peace to all nations through the seed of Abraham. So this heart, this thought that was among them that was discouraging them and keeping them from getting to work was a silly thought. So God encourages them. And now one final message of encouragement. And it's in verses 10 through 23 of chapter 2. One, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I understand. The second is more clear. But let's give it a shot. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, so two months later now. So these messages were given over a four-month period. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? Now, I think there's probably very few of you right now in the room saying, I know where that's going. (laughs) So this is difficult for us to relate to and understand. God's governing law for Israel included this massive theme of clean and unclean. If you've read the law in the Old Testament, you know that. And one of the reasons for these laws was to teach people about holiness, clean, and sin, unclean. And to ultimately teach them that we all are inevitably unclean, can't stay clean, certainly can't clean ourselves and need to be cleaned ultimately by God. And through this interaction, the prophet reminds the priests that while cleanness is not contagious, uncleanness is. If something holy touches something ordinary, the ordinary does not become holy. But this was true. If something defiled touches something ordinary, the ordinary is contaminated. So the priest responded, no. Verse 13. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. And then thankfully, because I'm not sure, frankly, about my interpretation, in verse 14, Haggai spells out what he's getting at. So we can be sure of this. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. He says they are an unclean people. Hmm. That doesn't sound like encouragement. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 15. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. We know how things were before. We've already been told. Over those 19 years, God was withholding his blessing. 
because of their disobedience. Verse 16, when anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. That was then. This is now. Verse 18. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. Here it is. From this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. Their God-inspired, God-enabled obedience was going to result in blessing. They have straightened out their priorities. They will obey and rebuild this temple. And as they do, they will be blessed by God. Reminds me of Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Blessing. This brings us to the very last part of this third encouragement. Verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So this is just for this governor. Now let me tell you a little something first. This governor was appointed by the Persians. It's not like God's people elected these, this guy. He's not a king. wasn't appointed by God as far as we can read in the text. He was a governor that was put in place to keep order. And he's in a line that wasn't so great. His grandfather was a terrible king of Judah. That was the last king that Judah had, and he was not good. And they will not have an earthly king again. But here's this governor, this guy who's in charge. And this final encouragement is a message just for him. I am going, God said, to shake the heavens and the earth. That means God is going to rearrange the power rankings. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. It used to be obvious that these people were God's people. They had power, they had a temple, a palace, and a king. And that king was very important because God told his people that this royal line of this king would bring about one day the king, 
who would bring blessing to all nations. But now here they are, and they're standing on ashes and ruins, and there's no temple, and there's no king, and God encourages them. This temple was going to be better than the first, and God had chosen this governor to be his signet ring. That is the ring that a king would wear to seal his decrees. God had chosen this governor to wear this signet ring, which was a symbol of authority, in other words. These 70 years of exile had not derailed God's plan to save his people. And so in Matthew chapter 1, where we read one of the genealogies of Jesus, and it is his genealogy which is traced all the way back to King David, there we find in verse 12, this governor right here. God's promise stood. His plans were not derailed. They can't be. We'll put all this encouragement together. The blessings of God, the supportive presence of God, the royal line intact, which would bring about the great peacemaker and the new temple where that peace would be granted. God's promise stood. That was the encouragement for his people. Their disobedience had not derailed God's plan. He disciplined them and challenged them and encouraged them. And so now they needed to get to work. In conclusion, here we are at a very different time, very different place. Many of these promises that had not been fulfilled have been fulfilled. More promises still to be fulfilled. God has proven himself with a perfect track record. God has redeemed us. He has blessed us. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. He sent his son Jesus, who came and lived perfectly. And yet he suffered and he died and then rose from the dead in the place of his people. In the place of sinners like you and me. So that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to God. So that we could trust and love Jesus, have our sins forgiven, be washed clean. 
And here we are. We've been saved. We've, we've been redeemed. We are his temple, 1 Corinthians 3.16. You yourselves are God's temple and his spirit lives in you. That is true spirit individually and collectively. His spirit dwells in us and among us. The wall of hostility between us and God, that curtain, it has been removed. It's been removed between us and one another, though we don't always act like it. But it has been removed. It has been torn down. We have the full supportive presence of God. We have been blessed by God. We have our king, and his name is Jesus. And so two parting questions that if you need help, may help you apply this message from Haggai even more. Question number one, what would God have you do? What would God have you do? God would not have us rebuild his temple. What would he have you do? Certainly to be careful not to fall into the position his people were in that we just read about. We must prioritize God. What else does it mean when we're told to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? To love others as we love ourselves? We must not neglect our relationship with God. We mustn't neglect our own soul. We need to commune with him. We need to worship him. We need to serve him. And some of you, you know what they are better than I do. Of course, you need to make changes. Some of you need to repent for the first time. Some of you need to repent again and again and again. Receive God's forgiveness Love and serve him again and anew. What would God have you do? If you're a husband, he'd have you love your wife as Christ loved the church. If you're a wife, he'd have you love and submit to your husband. If you're a parent, he'd have you raise your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you're a kid, he'd have you honor your mother and your father. If you're a neighbor, he'd have you love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you work, he'd have you do your work as if you were doing your work for the Lord, and on and on and on. There are challenges in Scripture, and you read about them all the time. And we should take note because we love God, and we want to please him. So what would God have you do? And then question number two, and how would God deal with you? It's really important you ask yourself this question if you're going to ask the first. Because I could tell you what's going to happen. When you ask that first question, you're going to have answers. You're going to be challenged. Challenge accepted. And then you're going to fail. You love God, there's this war within you, 
You don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh. You want to walk by the Spirit, just like you're told in Galatians. But you're going to fail. You're going to grow. Sometimes it might even be barely noticeable. You're going to grow. God's going to finish the work that he has started in you. But you're going to fail. How would the Lord deal with you? Well, we see several things in this text. Number one, he is sovereign. So he's in complete and total control of your life. And sometimes he is going to let you fall, and sometimes he is going to hand you over to your sin. And please listen, and when you struggle and when you suffer, whether it's at your own hands or the hand of someone else, God is good. We're very quick when something great happens to say God is good. But we must be careful that we don't only say that when things are going well for us and God answers our prayers the way we want him to answer our prayers. We know, don't we, as Christians, that when it doesn't go well and when God says no and when we suffer and even when we are handed over to our sin, we know and should say God is good. He's still good. So we know that God is sovereign. We know that these things are part of his plan, including our failures. That is all part of his master plan to make us more like Jesus, to increase our joy and to get himself more glory. And we should remember it's just glaring in this book of Haggai that God is so patient and kind to us. Far more patient than we deserve. Far more kind than we deserve. He challenges us and he encourages us. So let us commune with God. Let us worship him. Let us serve him knowing that he is working in us and with us and through us. And he is not our angry, disappointed, disapproving father. But he is our patient, kind, merciful, Gracious Father, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for being so good to us. We do not deserve your love, your affection, your help, and yet we have it. God, help us to grasp this so that our hearts would be filled with love and gratitude and thankfulness. 
and that we would live for you in this life that you've given us for your glory, for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every day following every sermon, one of the ways we respond is by taking communion together. We do this in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember, we celebrate what he has accomplished for us on the cross through his death. So I'll read you these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we remember and proclaim the Lord's death together today. We'll have leaders up front who will serve you. We ask that you come forward through these two middle aisles and take the emblems and then return to your seat and wait, please. And we'll take them together as a family. Let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word, we turn our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son. May you be glorified as we remember and proclaim his sacrifice in our place so that we could be reconciled to you and now live in obedience to you for your namesake. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.